0: This is a Scream Queen production. Serial City, USA. Sounds like a good time, right? This urban metropolis, located where the Battle Creek and Kalamazoo rivers converge, has a strange and fascinating history. Named after a bloody battle between natives and 19th century land surveyors, Battle Creek was the birthplace of Seventh-day Adventists and a vital part of the Underground Railroad. It was also home to the Kelloggs, a family of eccentric inventors and entrepreneurs who would go on to rule the world of breakfast foods. But before their worldwide fame came the sanitarium, and the questionable deaths, and the fires. And after their downfall came the complicated legacy that would continue to result in tragedy for decades to come. Cereal is Battle Creek's lifeblood, but it's also been the root cause of bloodshed many times over. I'm Jen Carpenter, the host of So Dead Podcast. In this eight-part series, I will share with you stories of murder and mayhem from Serial City. Some so outlandish, you'll find yourself choking on your corn pops. Welcome to the Serial Killer Chronicles, a So Dead series. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Serial Killer Chronicles. This is a serialized podcast, which means you should listen to the episodes in order. So if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, please go do that now. I'll be here when you get back. Now let's snap, crackle, pop. Part 5, The Wildflower When Serial King Will Kellogg passed away on October 6, 1951, his death made headlines around the world, and the thousands of employees at his cereal factory in Battle Creek mourned him. Among them was 32-year-old Daisy Zick, a popular, vivacious redhead who would soon make headlines of her own. Daisy Marie Holmes was born on her family's farm on Mud Creek Road in Assyria Township, about 10 miles north of Battle Creek, on February 5, 1919. Her sister Dorothy was born two years later. The Holmes girls attended a one-room schoolhouse during the day and helped out on the family farm at night. Daisy finished school through the eighth grade, which was right about the time she met and fell in love with her neighbor, Neville King. The two were married soon after, on September 29th, 1933. Daisy was 14. One four, fourteen. 14. Her husband was 22. The young, and I mean young, couple moved to Battle Creek, where Neville made good money working at the United Steel and Wire Company in town. When Daisy was 17, she gave birth to her only child, a son, James. But life in the King household was not the happily ever after Daisy had hoped for. Her husband was terribly abusive, both physically and mentally. He berated Daisy, he called her horrible names, hit her, kicked her, once even broke her nose. The violence in the King household was so conspicuous, neighbors often complained. The day Neville threatened to kill Daisy, she took baby James, not yet a year old, And went back to the family farm on Mud Creek Road. But Daisy, only 18 at the time, was too young to file for divorce on her own in the eyes of the court. Her father had to do it for her. Maybe, if someone is too young to file for divorce, don't let them get married in the first place, American legal system. Just a thought. The divorce proceedings went quickly, and Neville was ordered to pay $3 a week in child support. Things were rough in the beginning, Neville was still filled with all that rage, Daisy and James were both young and vulnerable, but eventually things settled down and Neville faded into the background, his only role in his son's life, the weekly checks he sent. Shortly after her divorce, Daisy took a job at one of Battle Creek's many food companies, Nabisco. Her sister Dorothy worked at the nearby Western Biscuit Company, and the two girls, both still teenagers, decided to get an apartment together in the city. The drive from the farm to the factories wasn't a long one, but most of the roads were dirt roads, and so the trek was not an easy one. Or, at least, that was the reason that Daisy gave when she made the decision to move to Battle Creek without her child. She left James, now a toddler, on the farm with her parents, only traveling the 10 miles home to visit him on weekends. In 1941, when the U.S. plunged headfirst into World War II, the city of Battle Creek transformed seemingly overnight. The factories changed gears and began manufacturing food and other supplies for troops, and nearby Fort Custer became an active military training base. With thousands of men in uniform now training, living, and working in Battle Creek, Daisy, along with many other single ladies in the area, became a party girl, going to dances and bars that were frequented by soldiers on a nightly basis. She had brief flings with a number of military men before she met Floyd Zick, a newly enlisted soldier in the United States Army. The two were married in 1942, when they were both 23. Daisy's son James, who was six at this point, was given a choice. He could move with his mother and stepfather to Battle Creek, or stay with his grandparents on the farm where he'd spent his whole life he chose to stay on the farm. After Floyd returned from the war, he took a job as a butcher at Fales Market in Battle Creek. Daisy took a job working the night shift at the Kellogg Company. Daisy and Floyd Zick were an outgoing, fun-loving couple. Floyd was a jokester who liked to make people laugh, and Daisy was known for her kind heart and big smile. But they were both known for other things too. Floyd was a heavy drinker, and Daisy had a wandering eye. Whether Daisy's infidelity was a result of her husband's alcoholism or vice versa remains to be seen, but as early as the 1950s, rumors began running rampant around town about Daisy and other men. Tuesday, January fourteenth, nineteen 1963, was a bitterly cold day in Emmett Township, a suburb of Battle Creek where Daisy and Floyd Zick lived in a small, two-bedroom brick ranch home on Jono Street. I don't know if I pronounced that right. It's spelled J-O-N-O. I don't know if it's Jono, Jono, Juno, not sure. I'm gonna say Jono. There were six inches of snow on the ground, with forecasters predicting an additional couple inches by nightfall amid gusting winds. The temperature was right around zero, but was expected to drop as low as 17 below overnight. It's the kind of weather that literally takes your breath away. That makes you not want to go outside unless absolutely necessary. And it's the reason that the events that unfolded in the Zick household that day went unnoticed by neighbors. Floyd Zick got up that morning, kissed his wife goodbye, and left for work about 7.45 a.m., Daisy was working the afternoon shift at Kellogg by this point, so she didn't leave until later in the day. Floyd called home at 9 a.m., like he did every day, to make sure that Daisy was awake and getting ready for work. She told him that she was just getting ready to hop in the bath, then go meet a friend for coffee before work. They said their goodbyes, and Floyd returned to the business of butchering giant slabs of meat for sale. Around 12.30 p.m., Floyd got a call at work from Daisy's friend and coworker, Audrey Heminger. The two women were supposed to meet for coffee before their shift, but Daisy never showed. She was also late for work and hadn't called in, and now she wasn't answering the phone at home. Something was wrong. Floyd left work immediately to go check on his wife. During his four-mile drive, he wondered if maybe her car had broken down due to the bitter cold, sometimes really, really cold weather will zap the battery or do other strange things to vehicles, so it wasn't out of the question. About halfway home, Floyd spotted Daisy's white 1959 Pontiac Bonneville on the shoulder of Evanston Road, but there was no sign of Daisy. Worried she might have broken down and set off on foot for help, he decided to see if the car would start. Daisy's keys weren't in the ignition, so he used his own to turn the car on, and it started just fine. In his haste, Floyd failed to notice the blood smeared on both the interior and exterior of Daisy's car. Floyd got back into his own car and drove the last couple of miles home. When he arrived, he found the door to Daisy's side of the garage open, which immediately struck him as odd. Everything about the situation was odd. Daisy was a very conscientious person. She was punctual and kept an immaculate home. So for her to miss a coffee date and her shift at work and then leave her car on the side of the road and the garage door open, Floyd had a sinking feeling that something awful had happened. That feeling only solidified as Floyd approached the house. There was a small breezeway between the garage and the house. The door to the breezeway was often left unlocked, but the door that led into the kitchen was always, always locked, even when Daisy was home. Floyd found the door to the kitchen not only unlocked, but slightly ajar. He called out for his wife, but he got no response. Once inside the home, Floyd began to panic. The kitchen rug was bunched up against the counter as if someone had been running and skidded into it. Daisy's half-packed lunch was on the table, along with her work shoes. But if she'd never left for work, and she clearly hadn't, then how did her car wind up over on Evanston Road? Floyd headed for the master bedroom, hoping that Daisy had maybe fallen suddenly ill and gone back to bed. But she wasn't there. What he found instead was their white bedspread in disarray and splattered with blood. The contents of Daisy's purse had been dumped onto the floor, and her purse was sitting upright beside them. Her wallet was on the bed. Her $26 paycheck, which a $26 paycheck is a crime in itself, uh, that was still in her purse, but the $45 in cash that Floyd had given her to deposit in the bank that morning, that was missing. Floyd raced back toward the kitchen to call for help, but he noticed that the phone lines had been cut. Someone had definitely been in the house. But who? The living room appeared undisturbed, as did the bathroom. There was only one place left to check. The spare bedroom. The first thing Floyd noticed when he opened the door was that the hi-fi, for those of you not old enough to know what a hi-fi is, it's basically an old record player that's built into a cabinet Pretty much only see them in antique stores or at grandma's house these days. Um, but it, it's a big piece of furniture that was pushed out from the wall as if someone was maybe trying to hide behind it or perhaps push it toward the door as a barricade. And then Floyd saw the blood smeared and splattered along the wall. He followed the trail of blood to the floor where he saw Daisy's black and gold slippers sticking out from behind the bed. She was on her back her legs bent into an unnatural position. Her hands were bound behind her, and she was so covered in blood that Floyd couldn't make out her features. But he knew it was her. When he reached out to touch her, she was cold. And he knew she was gone. Floyd ran to the basement, where there was a second telephone. Instead of calling the police, he called Fails Market, where he worked. He told the assistant manager that Daisy had been shot, and asked him to call the police. Now, this sounds like an odd detail, but in 1963, there was no 911, so Floyd likely didn't have the number to the police memorized and just kind of on autopilot in shock. He called the only number that he knew by heart, or a number that he knew very well, instead. At one fifteen p.m., Lowell MacDonald, assistant manager of Fails Market, placed a call to the Michigan State Police Post in Battle Creek to report a murder at 100 Jono Street in Emmett Township's Wattles Park neighborhood. While Lowell MacDonald was on the phone with police, Floyd Zick was on the phone with Daisy's friend Audrey, the one who had alerted him that something was wrong. As the shocking news that 43-year-old Daisy Zick had been murdered spread throughout the Kellogg factory like wildfire, Floyd Zick sat quietly beside his wife's body for over 15 minutes, waiting for police to arrive. The Michigan State Police and the Calhoun County Sheriff's Office worked the case together. Detective Charlie Kahn from the State Police and Under Sheriff Wayne Fitch from Calhoun County were assigned as the lead investigators. They determined that Daisy had not been shot like Floyd assumed, but stabbed. 21 times. And bludgeoned. The suspected murder weapon was a spoilage knife identical to the ones used at the Kellogg factory to open boxes. Today, we just call them box cutters. The knife was found in Daisy's sink, still spotted with blood. Investigators determined that sometime after 10 a.m., someone entered the Zick home through the breezeway door. Daisy then opened the interior door to allow the intruder inside, likely because she knew the person. The point of entry was corroborated by a statement one of Daisy's neighbors gave to police. Mrs. George de France said that she'd gone out to get her mail a little after 10 a.m. and saw a man standing at the breezeway of the Zick home. He was jumping up and down, likely his body's way of fighting off the biting cold. He had dark hair, was of medium height, and was wearing a dark blue jacket. It was not uncommon for strange men to be spotted at the Zick home after Floyd had left for work, so Mrs. DeFrance thought nothing of it. About 20 minutes later, while letting her dog out, Mrs. DeFrance noticed that the garage door at the Zicks was wide open, and Daisy's car was gone. This did strike her as odd, but not odd enough to alert authorities. Officials surmised that Daisy was in her bedroom getting ready for work when she heard a knock at the door and unwittingly let a murderer into her home. Some sort of confrontation occurred in the kitchen and when Daisy tried to run, she was struck from behind with a blunt object. Dazed, she went for the phone, but her attacker severed the phone cord, likely with the same blade that was used to kill her moments later. She fled to her bedroom and her attacker followed. He used the sash from Daisy's robe to bind her hands behind her back, and he stabbed her in the bedroom at least one time, which was why there was blood splattered on the bedspread. Daisy somehow escaped and ran to the spare bedroom. She pulled the hi-fi from the wall in an attempt to either hide behind it or push it up against the door so that her attacker couldn't get in. But she wasn't able to get away. She fought, though. Hard. She had a number of defensive wounds to her arms, broken ribs, and several of her immaculate fingernails were torn and ripped. In the end, it wasn't enough. After Daisy was dead, her killer rifled through her purse, either as an afterthought or in an attempt to make the murder look like a robbery gone wrong. They took her keys and what little cash she had, then fled in her car before ditching it a couple miles away. Due to the brutality of Daisy's murder, investigators determined it was likely a crime of passion. When a woman is killed, there's a common phrase in the true crime world. The husband did it. Not only did Daisy have a husband she was being unfaithful to, and an ex-husband who'd been violent and abusive toward her, but she also had a boyfriend, Ray Mercer, a co-worker at Kellogg, who Daisy had been openly dating for over two years. Ray was one of the last people to speak to Daisy that morning. He called her from work shortly after 9 a.m., after she'd gotten off the phone with Floyd. They talked for about 15 minutes before exchanging I love you's and promising to see each other at work. Daisy's ex-husband Neville King was ruled out quickly. He and Daisy hadn't spoken in years, and there was no animosity there. He didn't care about her one way or another. Certainly not enough to seek her out after decades of no contact and kill her. Her husband Floyd and her boyfriend Ray had solid alibis. They were both at work, and they both passed polygraph tests with flying colors. Investigators then turned their attention to Daisy's friend, Audrey Heminger, the one Daisy was supposed to meet for coffee before work on the day of her murder. Rumor had it that Daisy and Audrey, an attractive woman five years Daisy's junior, were more like frenemies than actual friends. It was said that the two women, who were both married, competed for the affections of their male co-workers at Kellogg. Could Audrey have killed Daisy in a jealous rage? During intense questioning from the police, Audrey got upset and fled the interrogation in tears. And she stopped cooperating after that. The evidence collected from Daisy's home and car didn't amount to much. Investigators found a lone white button on the floor of the Zick home that didn't belong to Daisy or Floyd Yellow fibers on Daisy's person, about the home, and in her car that they believe likely came from a pair of yellow work gloves, much like the ones worn by Kellogg factory workers. The spoilage knife that was likely the murder weapon, also believed to be from the Kellogg factory, and a single fingerprint on the rearview mirror of Daisy's car that couldn't be attributed to anyone who had cause to be in Daisy's vehicle. There were witnesses, though. Multiple people saw Daisy's murderer that morning. Her neighbor across the street, Mrs. De France, saw a man at the house just before Daisy was killed. He was described as a white male, five foot seven, one hundred and thirty five pounds, in his late twenties or early thirties, with dark hair. He was wearing a dark blue jacket and lighter blue pants. Mailman William Newman Daly, who delivered mail to the Waddles Park neighborhood, said that just after 10 AM he saw a man walking down Michigan Avenue near the Zick home. The man was described as dark complected five foot eight, one hundred and fifty to one hundred and seventy pounds, around forty years old, with black hair, wearing a black waist length jacket. Normally a man just walking down the street wouldn't be an automatic murder suspect or even a detail that anyone would remember, but it was so cold that day, anyone out walking stood out like a sore thumb. On the morning of Daisy's death, Sergeant Fred Ritchie of the Calhoun County Sheriff's Department was transporting a prisoner to the courthouse and was running behind schedule when he saw Daisy's car parked on the shoulder of Evanston Road. The cold weather had disabled vehicles all over the area that morning, so he didn't think much about it or about the man in the blue jacket walking away from the car. 49-year-old Garrett Vandermeer was driving down Michigan Avenue about 11 a.m. that fateful morning when he got held up in traffic behind a white Pontiac Bonneville that was driving erratically at a speed of about 10 miles per hour. The car eventually pulled over on Evanston Road, and as Mr. Vandermeer passed, he got an up-close look at the driver. He described a good-sized, healthy-looking, good-looking fellow, a white male with a kind of medium-sized face that wasn't real red. His face wasn't skinny or puffed up, and his nose wasn't a fat nose. It was more on the slim side. I don't know what any of that means. He appeared to be about five eleven, even though he was sitting down, so I don't know how you can tell how tall someone is when they're sitting, and he looked to be anywhere from 30 to 35 years old. His dark brown hair was the most distinctive thing about him, Vandermeer said. He wore it puffed up in the front and then slicked back at the parts. At a loss, investigators began focusing on the Kellogg factory, which had become known for its seedy subculture of sex, scandal, and just all-around debauchery. Dr. Kellogg would be so proud. It was common for married men to have shopwives, as they called them, for married women to compete for the affections of their male colleagues. For adulterous affairs to be carried out in the parking lot on lunch breaks or in dark corridors of the factory. While the day shift was said to toe the line more or less, the night shift, where Daisy started, was wild. They smoked and drank and played music and danced the night away while boxing up Fruit Loops and Corn Pops. Daisy worked on the production line, and she sat right at the end of a row so that anyone passing through the factory had to walk by her. The women's uniform at Kellogg's was a form fitting white dress, stockings, and white shoes. Daisy was one of the only women who spiced it up with makeup. She was beautiful, talkative, and had a smile for everyone who passed by her. Over 80 men from the Kellogg factory were taken in for questioning, which was said to have broken up quite a few marriages. Given Daisy's reputation, if a man was questioned as a suspect, there had to be a reason. He must have been having an affair with her. Police questioned the wife of one Kellogg employee that had confronted Daisy a week before the murder and accused Daisy of sleeping with her husband. They questioned Floyd Zick's longtime mistress. It seemed that Daisy wasn't the only one that didn't respect the sanctity of marriage. They investigated prank calls that Daisy and Floyd had been getting at home and at work in the months before the murder, calls that continued even after Daisy's death. All dead ends. In the year following Daisy's death, investigators questioned over 800 people and followed close to 250 leads, all to no avail. The case went cold. All authorities had gathered was that Daisy Zick had been murdered in what was likely a crime of passion, either by a man she was having an affair with, a man who mistook her kindness for romantic interest and then flew into a rage when she rejected him, or the wife of a man she was having an affair with. A criminal profiler suggested that due to the location of Daisy's stab wounds, the killer had a fetish for large breasts, and that the killer's mother likely had large breasts. Weird. Weird. The profiler believed that the killer didn't intend to rape Daisy, instead just wanted to look, which was why she was only partially undressed. And that in the five years following the murder, there would be other violent activity perpetrated by the killer. Despite many promising leads over the years, only one man has ever been named an official person of interest in the case. On January 10, 1967, nearly four years after Daisy's murder, a man by the name of Virgil Pugh contacted police following an incident he witnessed at a Battle Creek bar. Pugh saw a man threaten a woman who refused to dance with him. The man told the woman that he would do to her what had been done to Daisy Zick. That man was William Newman Daly, the Zick's mailman. Daly had been questioned the day of the murder not so much as a suspect, but as a potential witness. He claimed to have seen a man walking down Michigan Avenue around the time of the murder and gave a description different from the other witnesses who'd seen Daisy's killer. So everyone else's descriptions kind of were the same. A uh, similar description of the man, similar description of what he was wearing. Only William Daly's was different from everyone else's. He'd also told police that when he passed the Zick home on his route that day, a little after 11 a.m., the garage door was closed. That contradicted not only other witness statements, but the known timeline of events based on the evidence. When police called him back in for questioning, 42-year-old Daly muddied the waters even further. He insisted that the person he'd seen walking down Michigan Avenue that day was a woman, not a man, and that detectives had heard him wrong and took his statement down wrong. He also lied about an assault charge that was filed against him a year earlier. He told officials that it was a domestic dispute between him and his wife, that he had parked his car about four blocks from her house, walked into the house intent on harming her, broke down the door, and then assaulted her boyfriend, who was there at the time but police knew this to be completely untrue. He'd actually been arrested for going to the home of his daughter-in-law, who he was obsessed with, and assaulting her. These discrepancies, along with Daly's cagey behavior, bumped him right to the top of the suspect list. Detectives also took note of the fact that Daly had a hairstyle similar to that described by other witnesses in the Zick case. During questioning, Daly told detectives he was getting ready to move to Florida, supposedly for work but he said that he would be back in Michigan soon and he'd be happy to take a polygraph then he walked out of the police department that day quickly left the state and never returned and without solid evidence authorities couldn't just go get him and make him return to Michigan for a polygraph test and further questioning so they had to turn to the people who knew daily for answers instead they first questioned Susan Denny the daughter-in-law involved in the assault She'd been married to William Daly's son, James, when she was very young, from 1962 to 1966. The couple split largely because of the elder Mr. Daly's behavior. Susan and James were living with William Daly and his wife, Virginia, at the time of Daisy's murder. She recalled that her father-in-law was behaving oddly that day. He told her that he'd seen a man walking down Michigan Avenue around the time of the murder, but that he hadn't shared that information with the police. This contradicts his later claim when he told police that it was a woman, he told them it was a woman, they got it wrong. If they got it wrong, why did his daughter-in-law also have it wrong? So now it's multiple people saying that he claimed it was a man, and he's insisting at this point that it was a woman. So that's just a little strange. It's also strange because he did give that information to the police, and there was no reason for him to tell his family that he hadn't just like there was no reason for him to hide from them that he'd been questioned by police the day of the murder. But he did. He later told Susan, on more than one occasion, that he had taken multiple polygraph tests in relation to Daisy's death. In reality, police had questioned him as a witness on day one, and then completely forgotten about him until the tip they received years later. These seemingly unnecessary lies weren't the worst thing, though. William Daly began making inappropriate advances toward his son's young wife, and he told her all the time that he knew who killed Daisy Zick. But Susan was not interested. At all. She was so uninterested, in fact, that she divorced her husband to get away from her creepy father-in-law. In the 1966 incident, Daly broke down the door of Susan's home, where she lived with her new husband and their newborn baby, and began to choke her. During the attack, he called her his wife and insisted that her baby was his child. So, an absolutely insane reaction to being rejected by a woman he was romantically interested in. Kind of like threatening to kill a woman for refusing to dance with you. Or maybe stabbing a woman on your mail route over 20 times for rejecting your advances. Police talked to Beverly Iden, a co-worker of William Daly's at the U.S. Postal Service. She, too, said that Daly's behavior in the days after the murder was rather odd and revealed that he had a dark blue jacket, similar to the one described by witnesses, but that after the murder, he stopped wearing it. Multiple witnesses claimed that Daly had bragged about how he used to watch Daisy Zick sunbathe topless in her backyard, something that the neighborhood boys also enjoyed watching her do. When investigators questioned Daly's ex-wife, Virginia, they became even more convinced that he was their guy. By this point, they had the opinion of that criminal profiler on record, so they asked Virginia about William's mother. She said that the woman was a petite, attractive redhead with a nice figure who was well-endowed, and that William and his mother never got along. Is it possible that William Daly, who interacted with Daisy Zick almost every day, given that he was her mailman, had become obsessed with the petite, well-endowed redhead that resembled his mother, that he'd mistaken her flirtatious nature for sexual advances, that he'd seen her son bathing topless and seen other men coming and going from the house when Floyd Zick wasn't home and finally decided to shoot his shot on that frigid January morning? That when Daisy rejected him, he flew into a rage, much like he would later do upon being rejected by his own daughter-in-law and a random woman at the bar? That authorities were too focused on Daisy's indiscretions that they overlooked her creepy mailman until it was too late? It's possible. More than one investigator involved with the case went to their grave believing that's exactly what happened, and William Newman Daly the only official suspect in the Daisy Zick case, took his secrets with him when he died in 2011. All other possible persons of interest in the case have since passed on as well. It's been 57 years since Daisy Zick's murder, so the chances of her killer still being alive, unless she was killed by someone under the age of 30, uh, are rather slim. But investigators still hope to close the case someday, and Daisy's son Jim now in his 80s himself, still hopes to get closure in his lifetime. While it might have been the first, the unsolved murder of Daisy Zick was not the last crime of passion involving Kellogg Company employees. In the next episode, we'll talk about a love triangle that resulted in a murder-for-hire plot in the heart of Serial City. My main source for today's episode was the book Murder in Battle Creek, The Mysterious Death of Daisy Zick by Michigan author Blaine L. Pardo. And then I also backed that information up with newspapers.com and find a grave information. But the majority of what I shared today came from that book. The Serial Killer Chronicles is an eight-part miniseries with new episodes released every Thursday. If you've enjoyed this show, please consider giving So Dead, my podcast about the weird goings-on in Michigan, a listen. You can find both the Serial Killer Chronicles and So Dead wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can find the Serial Killer Chronicles on Facebook and So Dead on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also reach me by email at sodeadpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jen Carpenter. Thank you again for joining me today, and I'll see you soon. Until then, stay special. Okay.